Have you heard? 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 Welcome to another episode of Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, we're calling this episode, You're Fired. That seems really soon. This is only my second episode. <laughs> Actually, our episode today is about turnaround schools. Oh, so we're firing teachers, We not, are firing teachers. And, and one of my favorite parts about our new partnership is because you are edu historian, when I have a question about how a particular policy, you go in the time machine. Yeah. And so I'm so curious, where did this idea that the way to fix a struggling school is to empty it of its contents, where did that come from? And when, at what point in history do we really start to see people line up behind that idea? That's it's a really good question. And I kind of knew it was coming. And so I drew an extremely complicated and snarky chart, which maybe we can throw up on the website at some point for people. Uh, so the, the simplified version of it, uh, without uh, drawings of dancing lemons or smokestack schools, would be uh, the idea first that our schools stink. Uh, and this has been an idea that is increasingly pervasive since uh, the 1983 A Nation at Risk report. And so we hear continually that our schools stink. Uh, never mind the fact that most of us have personal experiences that contradict that, right? But we hear it repeatedly, that the schools are in trouble, our nation is failing. It used to be the Soviet Union, and then it was the Japanese, and now it's China, and you know, I guess Finland are destroying us. Uh, those Finns are coming for us. And therefore, uh, our teachers must stink, right? Because most of school is teachers working with students in classrooms. Um, now, of course, this is a problem uh, for people logically, because... Most of us had teachers who were pretty good, if not excellent, but everybody had, you know, one teacher uh, who maybe wasn't the best teacher. And so the challenge then is to figure out, well, okay, well, so maybe it's that that one bad teacher uh, is everywhere, somewhere. Uh, you know, in my experience, I had like 45 amazing teachers and like one bad teacher, but maybe there's some school somewhere that has 45 bad teachers and one good teacher. Uh, and so this then, of course, is mediated by stereotypes and media portrayals of, you know, those urban failure factories, which, you know, also make for good rhetoric about, you know, the schools are in crisis, we need to intervene. Uh, and, and so then the solution is that all we need to do is get rid of all the teachers at those schools, because they must have lots of bad teachers at them. That's the assumption. Um, meanwhile, you can imagine on two different sides. On one side, uh, you've got increasingly interventionist uh, federal and state government. The federal government had basically no role uh, in education prior to 1958, where my favorite, the National Defense Education Act, uh, came into play, right? So you've got Sputnik launches in 1957, and a year later, we're going to defend the nation by... And that's actually in your your infographic. You oh, drew, it's in Sputnik there. I drew Sputnik launching. Yeah, yeah, and, and circling... Uh, and and so, meanwhile, uh, in addition to you know increasingly interventionist, distant uh, government bureaucrats, you have uh, policy researchers who have been making the case for a variety of uh, schemes, including you know merit pay or value added measures. These things are far older than uh, than, than their implementation in uh, the last few years. Um, tenure reform or the idea of firing the bottom 5% of teachers. And so uh, you see that these ideas, uh, which are actually 
market mechanisms, right? So the idea of a you know a merit pay, right, or or tenure reform, uh, the assumption here is that there are things that are interfering with the free market, and coincidentally. Uh, beginning in the 1980s and continuing through the 90s and 2000s, which we could call the aughts if you want to, uh, we see a, a bipartisan consensus between neocons and neoliberals who agree that the market is good. Uh, and so they turn to, uh-oh, Siri is confused by something. Siri's on the other side of the room and is talking to me. Um, and so they increasingly are, are looking with favor on solutions that would make uh, the educational sphere more markety. Uh, and so the end result that you see is that longstanding attacks on ed schools, attacks on unions, attacks on urban schools, which uh, predated Sputnik, um, you know, which are as as uh, old as the early 20th century, that those eventually combine with uh, increasing state and federal power and combine with an ideological consensus about the market and combine with some research on the shelf about some solutions, policy solutions, uh, that would make uh, schools more effective uh, free market spheres. Um, and the result is this idea that, uh, that hey, you could, you could fix bad schools just by identifying them and then identifying the bad teachers, firing the bad teachers the way that we close bad businesses, um, the way that we fire bad employees in the private sphere. And the end result will be great schools for everyone, especially those kids who we see in these movies like, uh, you know, Stand and Deliver and Dangerous Minds and uh, uh, Freedom Riders and whatever the latest iteration of the urban horror story, which, of course, most of us uh, are quite surprised at when we send our kids to urban schools and they're uh, happy and they have friends and there's we, like a curriculum I think and you teachers. Did. You did an amazing job, and we can probably just wrap things up now. Yeah, no, I think that that's that's good. And what are we going to do for our third episode? <laughs> we actually have a lot that we're going to get through in this episode. We're going to look at some research. We're going to talk to uh, a professor at UC Berkeley, Tina Trujillo, who studied turnarounds. You just broke the rule from last episode, which what, was what don't was don't reveal who the guest is going to oh, be. Oh, yeah, that that really didn't work out very well. <laughs> but I also I thought it would be really interesting if we heard from some teachers who are in the throes of this process right now. And yesterday, I went out and about, I went out into the world, and I went, I visited two different Boston high schools that are entering the turnaround process, and the teachers that I interviewed have have uh, just been notified that they've been excessed. They're going to be... That's a uh, nice phrase. A nice phrase. They're going to be uh, reapplying for their jobs. And I thought that it might be enlightening for us to hear about what the policy looks Looks like from their point of view. So let's take a listen. So two Fridays ago, all Excel High and Brighton High teachers were given excess letters. Um, that was a decision that the school department did not have to make. Um, any ration, the only rationale we've ever been given was that level four status allows the superintendent to do it, um, but he did not have to do it. Um, that's the only explanation we've been given. I think if you look at the track record of turnaround schools where they accessed all the teachers, um, it's puzzling why they would choose to do that here as well. If you look at the Dever is still in uh, a level five school, the Mattahunt, they're um, now closing. 
Um, the Burke took many, many years after they accessed all their teachers to get out of turnaround. Um, and now Madison Park last year, they accessed all the teachers. And, and from what I understand, they're not having uh, a great year over there. Um, so it seems like um, they're just following uh, an unsuccessful path. That was Rajiv Martin. He teaches history to newcomers at Excel High School in South Boston. Those are immigrant students who've just arrived here. What the teachers explained to me was that in Boston, when a school is going to be turned around, there's actually quite an elaborate process. They convene what is called a stakeholders group, and those are community partners, parents, students, and a couple of teachers. And this particular group had a very clear idea of what they thought was needed to turn Excel High School around. Let's hear Rajiv again. The number one recommendation from um, all of those people, uh, and, it, and, it, and they felt it was so important that they put it in its own section at the beginning, was keep the teachers, keep the staff, um, don't access everyone. Uh, and then the first thing they did was to access everyone. So I think that um, it's important for people to realize that the turnaround process as it happened here was not... Uh, democratic and it didn't respect the what the community wanted and it it also raises a, another i think fundamental question about what school should be or what should make a good school or what should define a good school should it be defined by bureaucrats in the department of education or should it be determined by parents in the community um, and if you don't think it should be determined by parents in the community i think we're just going to disagree there even listening to that brief couple of remarks from Rajiv, I really started to get the sense that not everyone involved in this turnaround process even has the same definition of what, not only what success is, but but what a school is for. I think that that's a really good point. Uh, you know, there's there's clearly a big gap in the assumptions that people are making about what schools are and how schools work. And uh, as I started to to try to highlight earlier, you know, one of the assumptions about what schools are uh, in the sort of the dominant reform thinking is that schools are places with fairly straightforward aims. Uh, the aim is to uh, increase academic achievement and that that academic achievement can be measured. It can be measured accurately, that test scores therefore measure what schools do, um, that uh, teachers are responsible for uh, academic learning. Um, and, and even though scholars uh, debate this, the public also uh, tends to challenge these kinds of simplistic notions, right? So if you, if you talk with somebody about, you know, who is responsible for whether a kid learns or not in school, um, you don't need to be a researcher uh, who can measure uh, out-of-school variables versus in-school variables and try to isolate teacher effects, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to say, you know, it really depends on, you know, what's, what's this kid's background like? Uh, how much support has this kid had? And of course, once you start thinking that way, you begin to realize, well, gosh, uh, it takes a lot more to be a successful teacher than to just be a master of content, uh, you know, who is delivering it at as fast a pace as possible in a test-aligned fashion, you know, you begin to think, huh, a teacher is somebody who motivates kids and who establishes strong relationships with them, who makes them feel welcome, who helps them build bridges with each other, who helps them discover their passions and interests, who helps them gain a sense of academic uh, self-efficacy and self-confidence, who helps them set ambitious goals for themselves, who helps them de determine 
their own futures and develop work ethic. Uh, and so the assumptions of, I think, a lot of members of the public and, you know, a, a lot of scholars, and it'll be interesting to talk with Tina about this later, uh, do not necessarily align with those of policy elites who see a much more clean enterprise that can be governed by market rules, right? We have, we have inputs, uh, you know, teachers, uh, students, the raw materials, teachers are the employees who take the raw materials and who turn them into something. Uh, the output would be knowledge as measured by tests scores. Um, you know, if that's the case, uh, and if test scores do measure uh, teacher effectiveness, then all of this is quite logical. Then you do want to get rid of all the teachers at underperforming schools, quote unquote, underperforming schools, right? Even that is a, a loaded phrase. Uh, whereas if your assumptions are a little bit different, you think like, gosh, the test scores are low at this school. I wonder why. Uh, I wonder if it could be because this school has a large immigrant population with families that don't speak English and possibly parents who never received a formal education. Uh, you know, I wonder how these kids feel. Do they feel welcome here? Do they feel safe? Uh, do they feel like their teachers care about them? Are they beginning to see themselves as students? Do they want to be at school every day? Are they engaged? Are they working hard? Um, that's a very different way of seeing a school. And it also, you hear that even in the way that the teachers view the set of policy prescriptions that are coming down. I was really struck by how skeptical they were about the path that these schools are going down and that, that they, they really seemed able to articulate for very concrete and as they would say, data-based reasons why they think this is the wrong way to go. And I want to play you another quote. This is for a, a, another history, um, from another history teacher at Excel. It's one thing to change the curriculum and the programming of the school, but then to do that in conjunction with also removing all of the adults that students have come to rely on, I think that's going to make things even more um, disruptive, traumatic. And, and, and it, it's not, I don't, see, I don't see it pushing us toward rapid improvement, which, you know, that's the whole point of turnaround is to push the school into rapid improvement. I don't see that happening with, with the decisions that have been made. The... The teachers who I talked to all insisted that they weren't actually that worried about their their job prospects for next year. They don't know whether they're going to be coming back to these schools, but these are these are top notch teachers. They they can they could get a job at a suburban school in, in a second. Um, but I, I thought it was just so so telling to hear them voice such doubt about about these policy prescriptions and and I thought it, it would be really interesting to hear the what the conversation sounded like if the teachers were able to sit down with the people who are either putting these policy prescriptions together or or in charge of imposing them right. on the schools. I would imagine that they would look at each other like they're speaking different languages, right? Uh, you know, so you have policymakers who see very clear cut problems uh, and have devised solutions. Uh, you know, there's a great H.L. Mencken quote, which I will mangle. Uh, Mangling Mencken uh, will be my, uh, my memoir. Um, you know, for every uh, complex problem, there is a solution that is, uh, you know, something like clean, simple, and wrong. Um, and of course, you know, the, the problem is when you've identified a dilemma, which is, you know, it's not a problem. It can't be solved. It can only be managed uh, or a complex problem. 
which can be solved, but only through uh, you know a sort of thoughtful, nuanced, uh, you know, time-intensive, resource-intensive process. If you mistake a dilemma or a complex problem for a simple problem, and you devise a straightforward, simple solution, it will fail. And so I think you know what we're hearing is that these teachers see a very complex problem, right? That what they see, and it's, it's possibly a dilemma that can't be solved. They see a lot of kids who are coming to school. <clears throat> And they they have not come on day one as five year olds with pre reading and pre math skills and school ready dispositions and attitudes and and that's fine. Um, but the school you know has its work cut out for them there in terms of you know getting all those kids to where they eventually need to be, uh, particularly given the fact that they may not be in an integrated school, uh, and so teachers will have higher concentrations of needy students to work with, um, and so you know th- that's one issue that I imagine teachers are seeing. Teachers are seeing that they've got students who uh, have a a wide range of needs and they're trying to meet those students where they are. Um, You know, that's another issue that does not lend itself to a simple policy solution as opposed to, you know, what I, what I might imagine, uh, you know, a policy elite saying would be, you know, no, 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 but the test scores are low, right? It's like, we have to solve the test score problem where for a teacher, the test score issue is like, that's almost beside the point. Uh, sure. Yes. Right. We've got a lot of kids who are not reading at grade level. Absolutely. I'm concerned with that, but adopting a new curriculum isn't going to, you know, make sure that this kid got what he or she needed when he or she was three, four, five years old. It's not going to uh, make sure that this kid uh, was in a diverse school that had adequate resources where teachers were able to devote sufficient attention to these kids. It's not going to make sure that these kids have a quiet place to study and glasses so they can read and dental care so they don't have a toothache in the back of the classroom. I someday hope to meet someone who self-identifies as a policy elite. Yeah, it's a phrase that that I use that uh, that obviously it has a, a whiff of condescension to it. But I and I, you made kind of a condescending face. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I kind of pulled my nose up when I said it. I want to share with you one more quote, and before I do, I was remiss in not giving the last gentleman's full name. It's Marcus Walker, and he's a history teacher at Excel. As you and I were talking earlier, it just happens that both of these high schools in Boston have huge numbers of immigrant students, particularly immigrant students who have just arrived. So, for example, Rajiv, who we first heard from, he uh, got a new student just this week from Vietnam. The uh, teacher we're about to hear from, Kristen Leathers at Brighton High School, or as it's pronounced here, Brighton, (laughs) (laughs) she she teaches what they call ESL3. So these are often the students arrive at Brighton High not speaking English, and they gradually get to the point where next year the students she's had will go into mainstream classes. But... I was so struck at how the debate about what's going to happen to their school and to their teachers is playing out with this larger context um, about immigration and and raids and and travel bans. And to me, that made the the specificity of the turnaround debate seem suddenly very small and and tilted in the wrong way. Sure, although, you know, not small in the sense that, you know, it's not going to be a small thing to a student who suddenly is afraid to come to school that his or her favorite teacher is not going to be there next year. Exactly. Well, and I I meant it in the sense that that what a policy elite might regard as a as a small necessary intervention 
suddenly appears much larger right. in this in this sort of tumultuous context. So let's hear from from Kristen Leathers. My students come from all over the world. Um, a lot of them are from Central and South America, but I also have students from Brazil, Cape Verde, um, Poland, Vietnam. We have students who speak, I believe, uh, almost 20 languages in our school. I think that it's just another layer of um, them not knowing and being able to depend on what's going to happen in their future. Um, in this environment where um, it seems as though immigrant status is being questioned, whether you have a green card or a visa, no matter how um, legal or solid your status seems, to provide these students with a stable environment where they know they can rely on something is important, and this has been taken away from them. Just a fun little background fact about the school where Kristen teaches. It was a recipient of one of the big Gates Small Schools grant. And apparently when that money ran out, that that was when the school began its current slide, that it's it's a comprehensive high school. And like a lot of cities, Boston's getting choicier and choicier. And so it means there are all sorts of different options. But for the most recent arrivals, those options aren't really an option. Right. You know, it's so interesting that you mentioned the Gates money because uh, the the Gates Foundation pulled out of its small schools initiative because even though they adopted a reform uh, policy that had been advocated for by folks like Debbie Meyer for years and years and years uh, as something that was a kind of uh, change in the, the quality of life at a school, um, but which was not something that could be done as an a la carte reform and, of course, was done as an a la carte reform. The Gates Foundation pulled out of that because they didn't see academic achievement scores rise. But, of course, what we did see was a student engagement increase um, we saw students graduating more, staying in school longer, developing more trusting relationships. And, uh, you know, all of that squares with the kind of stuff that Debbie Meyer was writing about. And, you know, again, we get back to the policy logic at work here where, you know, folks who, uh, who say that they are really concerned with um, the outcomes of uh, urban youth end up pushing policies that have all of these unintended consequences, which in many cases are are making conditions worse for young people. Uh, and so, you know, closing down someone's school, there is such a thing as a bad school. I've been inside some bad schools, but there are lots of schools that get labeled bad schools, which are actually really great schools where they've got really great teachers and kids are learning and they're showing up to school every day. They're behind for a number of reasons, which really don't have to do with who the teachers in the classroom are um, and and don't indicate that these kids will not graduate uh, or that they will not be engaged um, and that you know turning turning their educational experiences upside down in the name of helping them has a kind of tragic irony to it I'm Jennifer Berkshire you're listening to have you heard I'm Jack Schneider and I'm here with her Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. We've been talking about school turnarounds in this episode of Have You Heard? And we have a special guest on the line. Tina Trujillo is an associate professor at UC Berkeley. Tina, are you there? I am here. Good to be here. 
We've been hearing from some teachers at two different Boston high schools that are in the process of being turned around. All the teachers are having to reapply for their jobs. And one thing that came out so clearly is the teacher's high level of skepticism about this particular policy path. And as you've been arguing for some time now, research actually bears them out. Absolutely, and I would say uh, this didn't. The, the warnings about these types of uh, competition-oriented, test-driven reforms—they didn't—they didn't start with with uh, my work with Michelle Renee or others. Jack has, has done uh, great work that has pointed to the, the weaknesses in these theories. Um, historically speaking, um, others have looked at this for some time, and we have over two decades of solid empirical evidence. That get that explains the reasons why these types of high stakes turnaround reforms are destined to uh, to fail, and um, we have work that looks at early efforts to reconstitute staff, um, and it shows not just that student achievement did not change or, or did not significantly change um, gaps in achievement between different racial or linguistic or other or socioeconomic groups. Uh, don't change under these models. What does happen is there are other counterproductive um, uh, effects, and I would imagine that those are some of the um, concerns that the teachers you've been talking to intuitively understand about what happens professionally when you completely um, lay off a staff and change the composition of the, the faculty and, and uh, the principal. Uh, students and uh, we have the research that shows us this. We also can think about this from a commonsensical perspective um, and not the, not the dominant common sense that, that we hear so much about today as far as the sort of market mentality and the need to just get tough on schools and to have higher standards. But, but thinking about from a student's perspective what happens when you walk in the school door and every adult looks different and all the teachers are new and, and there's a new principal and that principal has enormous challenges uh, facing her or him as far as developing the skills of an entirely new staff uh, immediately to to uh, attain some kind of dramatic uh, gains in test-based achievement. Um, it just doesn't happen. Uh, stability goes down in the school. The climate suffers. Um, teacher churn um, increases. Even the teachers whose jobs are threatened, we've seen in D.C. and elsewhere from other evaluations and research, that they, they voluntarily leave and they're not necessarily the worst or least experienced teachers who leave. They're teachers who are demoralized by these types of threats um, that don't that they know uh, from their own uh, professional judgment. They know that this is not the way you improve and learn new skills. Tina, I did my best to try to lay out some of the policy assumptions that guide uh, belief in turnarounds and reconstitution. Um, but I'm wondering if you could maybe speak for a minute about uh, what what you think the uh, logic is and what the evidence base that those who support, uh, you know, emptying a school out uh, and then repopulating it uh, with teachers mm-hmm. and a new curriculum, et cetera. You know, what what evidence would they point to and and how would you explain the, the policy logic that underlies that kind yeah. of work? the original uh, policy logic or the theory of action, if you would call it, 
uh, behind uh, school turnarounds and the reconstitution of staff, uh, it comes out of business and industry. And in business and industry, there was once an assumption that if you laid everybody off and used a much more dramatic sort of approach to to making big, bold changes in the comp- in the composition of who is working for you, that you can you can dramatically turn around a company quickly. Um, in the research world, uh, we know from the from the business and management literature that 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 logic didn't play out there either. Um, so schools have actually adopted an approach that's already been disproven in the industry where it originated. Um, in schools, there's an assumption that if that uh, I think that the theory of action behind school turnarounds and these reconstitution efforts uh, rests on a few assumptions. One is that teachers just aren't motivated enough to change. And if they know that their job is threatened, uh, that they don't have job stability, that they will then know what to do to change. And those changes can actually result in um, significant changes in student achievement. Um, we also assume that there are better, more qualified teachers available to fill those vacancies, just like there are better, more qualified, we assume that there are also better, more qualified principals to replace those outgoing principals. But we don't have evidence that this ever happens. Uh, We have evidence that, in fact, the replacements for these teachers are oftentimes of an equal uh, quality or lower. Um, we also have evidence that the threat, these, these coercive threats of losing your job or being sanctioned in one way or another, they demotivate teachers, they demoralize them, and they push them out. Uh, we don't have evidence that, that supports those types of assumptions in the logic behind the, the turnaround to begin with. You know, I want to ask you, there's been, obviously, we're in a, a very robust period as far as education news, and there's been so much going on that that it got a, the the previous administration's enormous investment in school improvement grants and the that the disappointing results that that effort produced got a little bit lost mm-hmm. in, in in the shuffle and there the the responses to that were pretty interesting i saw you know some people were saying this this basically shows that you can't turn a school around this is more um, this is this is e- making an even stronger case for uh, voucher shutting program for shutting them down, um, opening mm-hmm. more charter schools, etc. For mm-hmm. for teachers like the ones that I've been interviewing, who feel so strongly that this isn't the right path, what what kinds of policies should they be pushing for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question, and and I do I have I share your concern, Jennifer, about it sort of being lost in the the discourse right now around education and what's happening nationally the rhetoric around vouchers of choice. Um, uh, there are, we know, um, and this isn't to oversimplify things, but we know of more productive, uh, more promising policies and reforms. Um, we know that school integration is one of the strongest ways to produce consistent uh, or to close uh, gaps between different racial and socioeconomic groups. Integrate, so these um, uh, integration policies are one. Um, adequate funding is an enormous issue right now, and it's a challenge that people that schools are facing in all 50 states. So the inadequacy of the general funding and the inequitable uh, systems for allocating funding, funding across districts, those 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 finance systems need to be reformed. Um, we also know that. Uh, that uh, that um, increased learning time in the form of extended learning op- or opportunities that are high quality, right? We know that, when are, that that makes a difference in student achievement over the long term. 
we have more affluent communities where the families can make up for whatever time the students aren't in school with music lessons, with summer camp, with after-school programs, with different opportunities for enrichment. And then we have much more um, uh, economically, uh, which are also oftentimes uh, racially uh, isolated, schools where there are communities where those resources don't exist. We know that then, but we know that extended learning time, high quality extended learning time is something that is related to higher student achievement. Um, we know that investments in early childhood education pay enormous, uh, uh, benefits over the long run of the student's academic, uh, career as well as their, their, um, longer life outcome. Um, we know that, uh, uh, Issues around are that um, reforms that are embedded in more community-based efforts um, that engage the community uh, can be sustained for longer. Um, this is and this work comes out of long-standing work out of Chicago and elsewhere. Bright and his colleagues who have said the more you engage, who found that the more a community is engaged with the uh, with the reform itself. Um, <clears throat> rather than to be threatened or losing the, the, the school uh, uh, entirely, uh, the more likely that reform is to really take root and be sustained over a number of years. Um, there's oh. also just the issue of timing and giving reforms time to work. And I want to hear you in just a second, Jack. Uh, sure. A lot of the, I think, the appeal of the turnaround model is that it sounds it sounds really sexy and dramatic. You can do something really quickly overnight, but that's not. And we know from a research perspective and from a practitioner perspective, that's not the way schools change. Yeah, so yeah, I want to make an observation here, uh, and that it's it's uh, a, an observation about how politics work, uh, because you mentioned uh, two kinds of approaches. Uh, one is desegregation, and then the other where you gave us a series of, uh, you know, research-backed interventions that, of course, cost a lot of money, uh, right? So extended learning mm-hmm. or wraparound programs, mm-hmm. universal, mm-hmm. universal uh, early childhood education, high-quality early childhood education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the observation that I have here is that, you know, that these things take uh, a, a lot of uh, political... Uh, and financial capital, and they 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 involve mm-hmm. people giving up some of their own private good for the public good, right? So desegregation, mm-hmm. the idea there is like everybody's going to be better off, but you know you may not get to go to the very kind of school that you wish to because there's a greater good that we're after here. And I just wanted to make an observation that you know the failures of uh, efforts to marshal. Uh, people around the idea of the collective good in the 60s and 70s kind of led directly to this approach that we saw birthed in the 80s and coming to fruition in the 90s and early aughts, uh, which would be, you know, we don't need to give anything up. You don't need to make any sacrifices. You don't need to divert your tax dollars to poor kids. You don't need to send your kid to school with kids of color because we can replicate what works, right? We mm-hmm. can we can create a good school anywhere. We can have excellence for all and all we need to do, let's look at what works. We'll get a good building. We'll get good teachers. We'll get a good curriculum. And of course, those assumptions are really easy to make if you're engaged in this kind of simplistic policy thinking about what makes a school. Uh, whereas when you're seeing a school as an ecosystem and as a, a, a rich uh, a 
highly contextual place where each part affects all of the others. And for instance, swapping out all of the teachers is going to have a devastating impact on the ecosystem. That's a very different way of looking at it. But, you know, I'm wondering if you can comment and then, and then I think we need to, to move on. Jennifer is giving me the like wrap I am, it up I am look. Giving them the, and I also, I <laughs> happen to catch that your reference to excellence for all, oh, I'm yeah, pretty sure plug. you were plugging one of your previous books. Oh yeah. Yeah. I get a dollar uh-huh. for yeah. everyone that's sold. But, but so, uh, you know, the question that I've got is, you know, do you see any hope for uh, revitalizing the, the common mission of education, the p- education as a, yeah. as a public good and getting people, uh, you know, politically motivated around the kinds of reforms that we know uh-huh. work, right? The, so yeah. inter- integrated schools, universal pre-K, mm-hmm. high quality pre-K, mm-hmm. um, providing yeah. schools with all of the resources they need, even if it's additional services uh, to give kids equal opportunity. So uh, I think you are hitting on one of the uh, largest challenges that are that is facing public education right now, Jack, and that the, the thinking uh, about a common good or a collective good or a public good, thinking about education as a public good, that is no longer the dominant way of thinking about public schools. Uh, we have now uh, generations, decades of test-based reforms and discourse around schools that very much focuses on individual achievement and individualized uh, attainment of, of different educational um, resources and goals and things like that. And what we have then is uh, is a society that's very much socialized to think in terms of need, not in terms of us. Not to think about education as something that is a common good, which means sometimes uh, making certain sacrifices or doing something that is going to benefit the broader collective or the community or society, but really thinking very much about my individual children and what is best for my children, not what is best for the group. Uh, I see that in my students, my students who have never uh, uh, taught, who never taught before. Um, uh, the um, the era of high stakes testing and accountability, they don't have well developed notions of what a common good is or how education is an inherent public education in this country is an inherently um, uh, communitarian or public or uh, common or, uh, communitarian concept. And of course, uh, they talk about. They talk about their, 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 yeah, they talk about themselves and their identity in terms of their students' test scores. Um, a good example is, uh, I had a student just last year where we were reading John Dewey and we were reading about progressive education and his critique of John Dewey was that John Dewey didn't establish benchmarks <laughs> and that his, uh, and that his, and that Dewey was not explicit about uh, his measurable results. Measurable gains. You've, measure got te- you've got to teach for America and, Corps member on your hands there. <laughs> Yeah, then Dewey wouldn't, and he dismissed Dewey and these notions of progressive education because they didn't fit into this schema that he had developed as a teacher whose only work amidst this very individual focused, individualized, test based, competitive um, 
uh, culture of public schools. Uh, uh, I uh, cut you off, Jack. No, no, no you, no, you didn't cut me off. You kept me from cutting you off. You, you had a clear <laughs> line to the, the goal line there and you were, you were not going to be tackled. Um, <laughs> the, the, I, I, I was just going to, I was just going to add that, uh, that of course, you know, people say, you know, that the secretary of education doesn't have a tremendous amount of power, but of course, Betsy DeVos, who is a big supporter of uh, choice and particularly of vouchers, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, has the power to, of the, you know, it's a, it's a mini bully pulpit, um, but to foster mm-hmm. this vision of education as a private good, right, as a market commodity that people can mm-hmm. shop for. Tina yeah. Trujillo, I want to thank you for for letting us pepper you with questions. Um, if, if people don't know your work, they should look you up, Tina Trujillo at UC Berkeley. <laughs> and um, Tina, hang out on the line for just a second because Jack and I are foreshadowing our our next episode, and I think you're going to be very interested. Jack, do you want to do the yeah. honors? Oh, sure. Uh, coming I'm up, excited. coming up on episode three. For those who have managed to sit through two episodes, uh, will be a special guest. Michelle Ree will be joining us, and so uh, if if our listeners want to brush up, they should rewatch Waiting for Superman, or at least check out the the famous Time magazine cover uh, with Michelle Ree holding a broom on it. Uh, and uh, and if people want mm-hmm. to send us questions in advance, uh, things that they'd like us to to talk about, um, they can tweet those at us uh, using the hashtag have you heard uh, or directing them at B is for Berkshire uh, or at edu, I believe it's an underscore. You're an, under, you're underscore. an underscore. Edu yeah. underscore historian, uh, Jennifer Berkshire and uh, Jack Schneider. Uh, and, uh, and Tina, if you want to uh, give us a question that we should be thinking about uh, before our uh, conversation with Michelle Ree, we'll, we'll uh, put you on the spot here. Oh, at this moment. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, there, there are quite a few questions that, um, that I think are important to ask uh, uh, Ree uh, at this point. Uh, uh, I think the, talking to Ree about her record uh, and the lack of results, uh, positive results in her record, that's, that's a conversation that could be rehashed, but I think we kind of already know what happened in Washington, D.C. I'm more interested in uh, whether she is in considering uh, the decades of evidence that point to the lack of promise behind the types of reforms and choice-based reforms that she uh, promoted and that she continues to promote. Uh, I think moving forward on a national level, that's an enormously important question to ask of anybody who's engaged in the national scene um, on educational policy because these notions of of choice and competition-oriented reforms, if we look at the evidence um, and do not just stick to ideological uh, beliefs, uh, we don't have the evidence uh, to support them. So, uh, is she expanding her uh, consideration of the role of uh, teachers' unions, of community-based reforms, of more democratic um, investments in schools and communities? Um, because they're for the evidence line. Excellent questions, all. We will be back in a few weeks. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. I'm Jack Schneider. And this is Have You Heard. 